That was one of the things that was so fascinating about the weekend in Twitter, SVB porn media, was that it was coming from the pros. Mm -hmm. It was truly coming from the people who financially can see around corners that journalists cannot. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, March 20th. Today on Media Monday, John Kelly and I discuss the panic over Silicon Valley Bank and how much Twitter is to blame for the freakout. And we chat about who might take over one of the most watched jobs in journalism, the hallowed position of media columnist at the New York Times. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday, it's Media Monday, in which I am joined by a gentleman named John Kelly to talk about stuff going on in the media. And how you doing, John? I'm good, Peter. Um, John, the thing I wanted to talk about today was SVB. And I don't mean San Vicente Bungalows, the bougie club out here <laughs> in Los Angeles. I mean Silicon Valley Bank, obviously. <laughs> Pill and Teddy and, and others here at Puck have done some really good reporting on that. Patrick McHenry, the uh, bow tie clad congressman from North Carolina, uh, I believe chairs the House Financial Services Committee now. He called the semi run on SVB when it happened about a week ago um, the first Twitter fueled bank run. I don't think it's the first Twitter fueled panic the first twitter fueled news story obviously but what do you think about that take i mean there were lots of quote-unquote influencers in the financial space uh and by that i mean vc types and banker types who have cachet tweeting that there's going to be more bank runs coming on monday etc etc is that overheated to call it a a twitter fueled bank run or is it kind of accurate twitter was a part of this or 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 social media was a part of this I couldn't help but think as this was all happening, and it happened fast, uh, you know, in part because of social media. But it was hard not to think back to 2008 and, and nine, and you know, those were the early, early, early days of Facebook and and Twitter, and and it was hard not to think, you know, part of the the extended duration of that, you know, the the the, the months that passed between. Bear and Lehman, and you know we forget that like George Bush was still president when Lehman fell, and and you know Hank Paulson had to figure out uh, what was going to go on. Obama was elected and had to bridge the gap. Like there, there were, th- this involved so many people because it bridged administrations. It went on for a, a long, long time. Uh, it was obviously orders of magnitude larger, and these were you know much bigger institutional investors um, than than uh, a depositor bank. But 
it was amazing to watch the lobbying happening mm. in real time and the information flow. I think that we all, uh, all of us who are, who are plugged into a situation like this are, are, are getting alerts on our phones uh, from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or Bloomberg telling us that Silicon Valley has dropped 40 or 50 or 60% in trading on Thursday, and then pre-market hours dropped another 20% on Friday. We, we're aware of this. Um, and then when the FDIC came in, uh, we became aware of this quickly. But what happened next that was just, uh, I think, unprecedented, at least to my wary eyes, was the active lobbying that happened on Twitter, and it's going to get scrutinized, it might even be scrutinized by regulators, among people in the Valley, very publicly, who were immediately um, sort of creating an enormous doom and gloom narrative. I think a lot of people close to the situation behind the scenes knew that the federal government was going to do something, that equity holders would be wiped out, but that depositors were going to be okay. I think that the government has backstopped depositors on like 72 of the 73 bank failures in, in American history. Like I think there was sensible people knew that was going to happen. But this panicked effort from the sort of Jason Calacanis class of tweeters was enormous. And, and who is that, I by the way? Like, what is that class of tweeters? Like, can you describe them? Yes, I'm going to do my best and I'm going to do it politely because I don't. I have no animus towards this group. It is billionaire or billionaire adjacent venture capitalists with flexible libertarian views who believe that the government should um, not tell them what to do on financial or, or social issues, and yet they should be able to tell everyone else what to do uh, about whatever they think. Outspoken, very rich people who can be very obnoxious and are very active on Twitter mm -hmm. and all seem to have um, a very outspoken affinity for, for Elon Musk. And and it was it was notable just because it was weird that these that this group was calling for the support of the government when normally their <laughs> posture would be antithetical to that. And it was hard not to feel, I remember having this conversation last Sunday, it was hard not to feel by the time we got from Saturday to Sunday that this was all being litigated on Twitter. That we were beginning to see drips of news like by Saturday night, Bloomberg reported from a, you know someone close to the situation, probably around Treasury, that they were going to have depositors backstop 20 or 30 percent by Monday. And then the inside story on Twitter kept advancing that it was going to actually be 50 percent by Monday. Bill Ackman was really um, active uh, in this debate. And then by Sunday evening, when by the time it was clear they weren't going to get the bank sale they wanted, PNC pulled out and and the, the, the big four were not going to be um, it, it would cause all kinds of issues for them to just get bigger and bigger, they announced that Treasury announced that every depositor was going to get backstop, confirming what I think a lot of people may have assumed on Friday. So what was obviously a financial shitstorm was completely, by that point, a media, almost a scrum, and uh, it completely devolved into a media crisis. And I think that what, what we have to figure out now is who was talking their book? Who, who was motivated to do this through their own holdings? Mm -hmm. and, and were they impure? Yeah, this is a moment where media credibility actually matters because there are just a class of people tweeting all over the place <laughs> about what was going down. And so not that Jim Cramer is like <laughs> someone we need in this moment, but there are <laughs> credible financial reporters out there and economic reporters um, on TV, print, whatever, who can help sort through what's going on here. The problem is you have people like Bill Ackman's a good example. Like I think on Friday he was tweeting, there's still like a false sense of security out there. There still could be contagion. Yeah. Whether he's right or wrong, people, consumers rather, like news consumers, traders, whatever, like trust people like that more than the institutional media, especially in this sort of 
Reddit, TikTok universe, yes. and Twitter, you have. I actually think they should, to be honest. I, I don't want to okay. be controversial, but uh, in many cases, I think that, and there's a 2008 corollary here. The difference between what Joe Biden knows about politics and what Peter Hamby knows about politics actually I think is pretty small, to, to be honest. Obviously, one has more life experience than the other, but I don't think that there's a intellectual quantum between you and the president, for instance. I think the difference between what Bill Ackman knows about uh -huh. finance and what I know about finance involves multiple quantums. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's true even among the most august financial journalists, with the exception of our colleague Bill Cohen, who um, you know used to wear the cape before before taking it off. And that was actually one of the things, you're being a good editor, you're pulling out the, the idea here. Uh, that was one of the things that was so fascinating about the weekend in Twitter, SVB, porn media, was that it was coming from the pros. Mm -hmm. It was truly coming from the people who financially can see around corners that journalists cannot. I mean, they, they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. in this regard, you can't, you can't tell me that a financial reporter is going to have the um, acumen or the risk management appetite of somebody who's putting billions of dollars to work. Like, I, I'll just never believe that. I, by the way, I agree with you, and you've talked about this before, especially the way journalists generally talk about business. I think my observation is, and look, Silicon Valley Bank is not like trading GameStop or any fucking stock right. you found on Reddit. I get that. But like on social media, if you have a blue check mark, like Bill Ackman and Peter Orzag and Janet Yellen, mm -hmm. you know, Andrew Ross Sorkin all have blue check marks. They're all very smart people. There are also people with blue check marks who are just like, <laughs> random libertarian hedge fund guys or just That's traders true. because every fucking person in between the year 2009 and 2011 you could have been like a, a digital marketing millennial for some like midwestern firm and gotten a blue check mark because you knew someone on twitter and so like if you are like an average consumer of financial news and you have a vested interest in uh, making money on your stocks and trading and you do that stuff from home you could be a reddit person or a tiktok person and just like look up see a blue check mark talking about a bank run and not know who's who. That's sort of what I'm saying. You and I know the difference between Bill Ackman and Bill Bozo, but I think a lot of people on the internet <laughs> don't. Yeah. I wonder how much this, um, we were we were spry young things when 2008 happened, but it did, it obviously changed the culture. And of course that was orders of magnitude larger, but it opened people's eyes to the profound power of Wall Street, just that, that everything was part of Wall Street, that, you know, our investment funds, our retirement funds, our IRAs are being invested somewhere, you know, through a bank, that there is no difference between Wall Street and Main Street. In fact, Main Street like funnels up to Wall Street, which makes money off of its money and, and, and returns them into Main Street. And, you know, I think that it took actually a couple of days for Treasury to realize how interconnected Silicon Valley Bank was in the lives of of the venture and, and tech and, and life sciences mm -hmm. community. But one thing that also happened after and climate and climate, of course, yes, and, and many others. Um, you know, but one of the things that happened after to this day, of course, was that Main Street didn't want to believe that it had any connection to Wall Street and, and began this uh, this real sort of Liz Warren esque culture war. And that, of course, has already started here too. I mean, I laugh with tears of sadness when I hear the Ron DeSantis class talking about how like SVB failed because of the woke flu or whatever. And it just is absolutely astonishing. And it's just it's just stupid. And actually, it, it is enormously um, discrediting and just sad. It's, it's also weird, too, on the fundraising front for these Republicans. Like, th those are the kind of people that want to raise money from wealthy banker types. And like Nikki Haley put out a press release calling this the Biden bailout on the backs of everyday Americans, as Bill Cohan has noted, like there's no 
taxpayer liability here, <laughs> but it's like, you know, I am old enough to remember too. Like you think Nikki Haley would want to go to Silicon Valley and raise money from those very people. And instead she's like attacking them for sort of cheap political points that really don't necessarily resonate with, I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time believing like a Republican caucus goer and council bluffs is following the Silicon Valley thing very closely, but who knows? Maybe they're mm-hmm. Fox news addicts who do know about it. The only other thing before we take a quick break that I do want to mention just to roast myself a little bit on this topic was like thinking back to 2008 and the collapse, potential collapse of the global economy, reporters covering the presidential campaign back then, to your point, to prove this out, a lot of us didn't know what the fuck was happening. Like I was out covering yeah. McCain and Palin. I was like in my late 20s, I think. ING was getting bailed out. Like Washington Mutual was failing. CNN had Ali Velshi at the time who did a really good job of like going on TV and explaining what was going on. But like all of us like younger reporters and even by the way, like a bunch of older political reporters, like we were generalists in a sense, but more so just junkies about covering the ins and outs of the political game and the campaign. And when this actually existential threat arrived, I was struck by how illiterate so many of us were in how the economy works, literally. I mean, like it just was something that we didn't quite understand. And it made it so that it could kind of be both exploited by politicians who exploited our lack of knowledge by they would say something and we would just sort of do stenography and write it down and be like, John McCain said this, Barack Obama said this. And there were very few journalists actually covering the presidential campaign who knew about this sort of momentous topic in a a very savvy way. I was just sort of struck by that. We had to go back to our reporters in New York who could explain this stuff to us. So I think that's very true. A lot of reporters don't understand the financial system. Finance. They don't. And finance. Finance, right. Um, <laughs> let me throw in one final point before we hit the break, which is that you are not alone, my brother. I mean, there's a fantastic section in Obama's memoir where he details the meeting, um, you know, because it was the end of the election, where he and McCain met with, I guess, uh-huh. Bush and, and Hank Paulson and others. And Obama says politely, because we, we do not want to uh, say ill of the dead, that McCain was just a fucking moron, absolutely yeah. clueless about what had happened. And Obama came up through uh, public organizing and uh, had a law degree. He was, you know, he did not go to business school. He was not a, 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 an econ major, but obviously was an incredibly fast learner and a brilliant guy. And it was just, uh, anyway, you should, those, I remember that. I mean, that was a famous, book. that was a famous moment. Like McCain, they came out of that White House meeting. Paulson was in there too. And Pelosi and Boehner, I think. And like, yeah, McCain was just like deferring to everyone else and refused yeah. to like wait. <laughs> and we forget too that George Bush was president. I mean, in the short memory of our time, we, you know, the Iraq war just turned, we just had the 20th anniversary of the the day that we um, launched that war. People forget the intellectual deficit of George W. Bush. It's, uh, but they, but they really, really shouldn't. That is a whole nother topic. There is a interesting conversation to be had uh, if you talk to liberals about who do you hate more, Trump or Bush? Because people forget some of the Bush stuff. They sure do. All right, I want to take a quick break and do a quick segment, John, when we come back about who might take over the hallowed New York Times media columnist position. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. 
now available only on Netflix. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Welcome back, everyone, to the powers that be. John, the New York Times media columnist position is a sort of a vaunted role at the Times. Ben Smith was there before leaving to go start Semaphore. Jim Rutenberg was there before that. But uh, this, obviously, this is the David Carr slot. Yep. Uh, and they would famously drop a media column on Sunday nights that people like us would read religiously. Yep. Sometimes it was scoopy. Sometimes it was more of a argument or a column. Who's the front runner to take over this job? Well, it's a historic job, as you say. Uh, and you know, Dylan broke the news earlier this week that it sounds like it's Sarah Ellison's job uh, if she wants it. Sarah has a similar job with The Washington Post. Disclosure, she's a good pal of mine. Um, mm-hmm. I've not talked to her about this. I used to be her editor, her buddy. She's a great lunch companion, and I think she's fabulous. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens here because each person brings something new to it. You know, obviously, David Carr passed away tragically, mm-hmm. and there was a, a beat to fill it. Jim got it. Jim was obviously not the right person for the job. Jim was a political reporter, a campaign junkie, really smart, totally lovely person. But Great just not surfer, a media person, not, loves to surf out in Montauk. Yes, big Montauk Rutenberg. guy, big Montauk guy. <laughs> totally, totally, yes. No, I, <laughs> I love Rudenberg, yeah. but it wasn't, it wasn't the right fit. He knew that too. And all, you know, under his jurisdiction, it became sort of like a media matters type thing. I, again, I love Jim, not trying to criticize you, Jim. That's not what it had been in its sweet spot. You know, back when, again, when we were in short pants, like that was where not just big news happened, but like when an executive got a huge job, it was going to be like, they went to the times and said, well, you do this. You know, um, it was the, the big corner office interviews. Like it was a real thing in an era when there were things. Jim didn't do that. Ben rescued it, made it into a thing again. I think just with like sheer metabolism, so much metabolism, maybe that like it, it probably burned him out a little bit too, because he, he did something that was was new to the role. He broke news. I mean, the Carlos Watson thing, the Troy Young, I don't know if you remember Troy Young. He was the Hearst executive who um, was fired shortly after Ben wrote a big piece about inappropriate behavior and and interviewed Dean Bacay in, I think, his second piece. He called bullshit on Ronan Farrow uh, at The New Yorker, which was very, very unpopular at the time. And he was out there. And they've Ben's obviously been gone for more than a year now to, to start Semaphore with, with Justin. And they have kept the position open. I feel like they did it intentionally because they wanted to let someone come in and not have to, to work in Ben's shadow. Uh, Sarah will be different, um, indeed, if she takes the job. But I think they've left it open it turns out a wee bit long enough that um, companies like ours and Semaphore and even little pro- even products um, like the Confider at the Daily Beast um, have come in and taken some of the turf. So uh, Sarah's great, but it's going to be a different landscape. I also feel like this one more note on this. The Washington Post is really no, like I remember, by the way, this is talking about short pants when Howard Kurtz <laughs> wrote reliable sources. Yes. Oh, back, my God. Back, back in the day. <laughs> That was uh, a, that was like a must read media thing. Like I'm talking about literally in the print Washington Post, like in ancient. Yes, print. right. It feels like the I mean, the Post has obviously scaled and hired a ton in the last five, six years. But it's it's kind of felt like not 
essential for its media coverage? I mean, Margaret Sullivan wrote wrote her column. Um, totally not essential. No, we can be honest here. I mean, yeah. I, I, I do think the Post is essential for anything outside of core political reporting. I, I think it's, um, well, I think that the criticism is Washington that Washington sports it's, reporting. It, Just kidding. <laughs> Commander's <Washington>. reporting. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I'm sure public interest DC reporting too, important yeah. stuff, but the, um, but I think that there's a feeling, we were just down there, and there's a feeling in those waters that Politico is the sort of more essential, verticalized, political professional media company, and it has a higher metabolism, and it's obviously capitalized by you know KKR and Axel, but no one's as rich as Jeff Bezos, so it's a little mm-hmm. mysterious. Mm-hmm. All right, John, thank you so much, man. Good luck to your brackets this week. Talk to you soon. All right, talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.